there. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us today. I just spoke with Daryl Flaherty about his new book, Public Law, Private Practice, Politics, Profit, and the Legal Profession in 19th Century Japan. That came out with the Harvard University Asia Center of Harvard University Press in 2013. This is a book for you, whether you're interested in the history of the public sphere, the history of modern Japan, the history of the legal profession, or the history of global modernity. It's a book that revises what we tend to think of and the stories that we tend to tell about the place of some of the modern institutions of Japan within a larger global framework. And that is, stories tend to place the emergence of, for example, a modern legal profession in Japan within a larger frame of influence by and domination by more modern, more rational legal frameworks and legal ideas and legal theories coming in from what we might call the West. Now, what the book does instead is it looks at a deep history of Edo period practices of private law practice. That is, private law practices that are happening in kinds of spaces that we don't typically think of when we think of the history of legal firms, legal um, spots of education, law schools. And it puts together stories of those kinds of vernacular legal understandings, local legal practices in places like tea houses, in places like uh, suit inns, as you'll hear about um, in a few minutes. And it weaves those together into a very different kind of story of the emergence of what ultimately we come to know as a lawyer in late 19th century Japan. It's really interesting. It's based on a very detailed reading of lots of different kinds of historical sources. And it is very accessible and very illuminating whether or not you know anything about or are inherently interested in the histories of modern Japan. So... It was a pleasure to talk with Daryl about it. It, I learned a lot from reading the book, and I hope you enjoy both the book and the conversation. We're here today to talk with Daryl Flaherty about his new book, Public Law, Private Practice, Politics, Profit, and the Legal Profession in 19th Century Japan. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Daryl, and thanks very much for making the time to talk with me today about your brand new book. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners about my book and my work. So, Daryl, could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background and specifically what brought you to the field of the study of modern Japan? Um, I'll start with uh, my first encounter with Japan, which was or my first live encounter with Japan, which was in the early 1980s. I went to uh, Kyoto as an exchange student. And while I was there, um, I had this sort of episode. I came from St. Louis, which at the time during the early 1980s was a city um, gripped by a lot of violent crime. And I pulled out a map and asked my uh, host family to show me where uh, it was safe to ride a bicycle in Kyoto. And they really didn't understand this. In St. Louis, you could redline neighborhoods and say, oh, you shouldn't ride there. People might throw rocks at you or they might try to run you off the road. Um, But in Kyoto, that was sort of incomprehensible to them. And I'm telling that story because it really got me thinking in that moment when they were sort of befuddled and confused about what might uh, be a high crime area or where I should not go. I really started to think about what um, freedom meant in the context of Japan and the context of the United States. Now, I was pretty young then. I was just in high school, so I didn't have a very sophisticated grasp at the time. But over um, a couple of years of going back and forth to Japan, uh, this really became a key concern of mine. And that's in some ways... uh, 
a lot of my thinking and writing and researching about uh, Japanese history has come out of that uh, first and early encounter. Wow, that's really interesting. That actually speaks um, really interestingly to the topic of the book as well. So speaking mm-hmm. of which, the book that we're talking about today explores many things, but it's, they can be kind of broadly subsumed for the purpose of a brief, brief um, description under the topic of private legal practice in the 19th century. So private legal practice in 19th century Japan, what did that mean? Where is that instantiated? And how does that link up to some broader ways that we understand the emergence of modernity, of the nation state and the role of the individual and publics within that larger frame? So we'll talk about many of these components over the course of our conversation. But before that, um, it would be great if you could say a little bit about what brought you from the general field of modern Japanese studies and perhaps a special interest in freedom within that to the specific focus that we're looking at in terms of the book today. Um, As a graduate student at Columbia University, I was uh, doing research uh, for my master's thesis on um, suffrage. And so much of uh, the literature on the suffrage movement in Japan focuses on labor, uh, the labor movement and labor activism uh, against the state. And the more I was reading about uh, state and society relations in Japan, the more I saw this kind of uh, dichotomous tension, this uh, oppressive, overweening state and uh, an almost supine society that, but that it sometimes would rise up um, in anger and sort of lash out. Um, but as I began to examine the actual process of uh, the passage of the Universal Manhood Suffrage Law in 1925, I saw that there were all these other actors um, sort of in the middle between those two poles. Um, and that labor sort of really got out of the suffrage business uh, by the beginning of the 1920s. And it was, it, these other actors really carried um, the ball forward. Um, and they included lawyers and doctors and uh, local uh, political Um, elites and these kinds of people. And so I began to think that I wanted to study those groups, the sort of um, political middle in Japanese history. Um, And that's, um, I began to do that. And I really began to realize that that was much too broad a question um, to look at in terms of looking at uh, lawyers, doctors, and local political elites. And so I ultimately focused on lawyers because I saw them uh, involved in so many different activities. Um, So that was uh, how I began to focus on this topic. Great. One of the interesting things that I'll probably, um, that we'll come back to, I think, later on is, or, you know what, I'm just going to lay this out for you right okay, sure. at the beginning. Because part of the argument of the book, as we'll see, is that the category lawyer emerged, mm-hmm. emerged sort of late in the story, right? It wasn't necessarily yes. the case that there were um, concrete individuals calling themselves or that we would call lawyers in the same kind yeah. of professional sense throughout the story, how did you identify who counted as part of this prehistory of or history of lawyers before the category emerged later right. in the story for the purpose of your research? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. I mean, as you, as you noticed, when I was talking about the project, I, was talk, I started in the 1920s. Um, but we sort of move, you know, as you'll notice, also the book doesn't really get up to that part of the story. Um, and so what happened, as so often happens when you start with a project, you realize, wow, there isn't really a satisfactory sort of prehistory to the history that I'm proposing to write. And you do so much work on the prehistory that in the end, you're really sort of doing an, a different project from the one that you initially set out to do on. So initially, I, I imagined that I was going to write an early 20th century history with a brief um, sort of 19th century preamble. And what I ended up doing was 
um, doing a lot more research in the late 19th century than I ever anticipated. Um, and then going back even further and doing work uh, on the Edo period, which I, which wasn't originally part of the project at all. Um, so that's sort of how I've sort of pushed the project back chronologically. And then in terms of category, um, you're absolutely right. What I came to realize was that this idea of lawyer doesn't really um, firm up on the world scene globally until the end of the 19th century, if we're thinking, well, it depends on what you're talking about, but we can say, you know, mid, early to mid to late 19th century, depending on where. Um, but this idea of lawyer uh, doesn't really emerge. It's really um, professionalized and institutionalized um, by the end of the 19th century globally. And so that's part of the project is to say, if we want to think um, about Japanese history comparatively, uh, then it's important not to uh, think about um, you know, legal practice during the 19th century as uh, the work of lawyers, but rather as um, what I call them private legal practitioners. So. so you've already started to get at this just in your answer to um, the previous question, but more broadly, in transitioning this from a project that you worked on as a dissertation to a project that we are seeing now in the form of a final book, were there any major transformations or any other major transformations along the way that shifted um, either practically how you were working on the project or conceptually how you thought of your research and the kind of uh, stuff that you were arguing in the final project? Um. I mean, the big shift was that originally I thought about this as a study of, of an association. I mean, as I narrowed things down and focused on legal practitioners, I really began to focus on lawyers and particularly um, their national group, which was the um, uh, Nihon Bengoshi Kyokai, the um, Japanese uh, Lawyers Association, which was a national voluntary association. And so when I originally conceptualized the dissertation, that's what I was looking at. But um, as I began to look more and more at the late 19th and then also at the Edo period, uh, sort of prehistory, I found that that, that to be um, in many ways more interesting. And also as you work on a project, you get input from many others. And people were beginning to say to me, this doesn't really look like the history of an association in particular, but it looks like the history of these individual practitioners, or it looks like um, the engagement of these practitioners with uh, systems or um, with other individuals. So I began to explore um, lots of different avenues and, and sort of widen the scope um, and push it back chronologically to, into the Edo period. Great. Thank you. Sure. So now that we've got the kind of prehistory of the project, let's get right mm -hmm. into it. Now, okay. What I'll do is I'll spend a little bit of time just kind of laying the framework, um, and then mm -hmm. I'll um, I'll ask you to kind of jump in okay. in a minute or so. Sure. So one of the things that's laid out right at the very beginning is the fact that the book does something um, important in terms of questioning the dominant paradigms within which we understand the history of modern Japan and the history of um, legality and law in modern Japan specifically. So you say right at the beginning that you're going to question through this book the dominance of what you call the modernization paradigm in explaining the legal and political history of Japan. Now the way this paradigm typically goes for listeners who are um, perhaps unfamiliar with this mode of Japanese history, it, it, it tends to take for granted that individuals in the West enjoyed what you call expanding political participation and increased protection from the power of the state, while J people in Japan didn't. So the East falls short relative to the West, with Japan um, being sort of linked up with the East here, due in no small part to the absence of a distinction between public law and private law. Thus, public complaints and disputes required... or private complaints and disputes, rather, as you um, put it early in the book, 
require public attention. So in contrast to that narrative, the book really persuasively argues that Europe and the U.S., the West, as we might consider it, did not make legal modernity and then export it in Japan. In contrast, in early 19th century Edo society, which is where the book focuses, there was already a really interesting, really vibrant, really hybrid and plural legal culture producing engaged private practitioners of various sorts in various kinds of spaces and which laid the foundation for what you call an epistemology of law in the late 19th century. Okay, so that's the kind of framework from which um, we're, we're proceeding. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that's happening in the book, and this is something that um, the argument com- repeatedly comes back to, so I just kind of want to set it out at the beginning for listeners Private practitioners in the course of this story are repeatedly grappling with treaties that happen early on in this story that limit Japanese sovereignty. So a lot of the book hinges on reactions to, understandings of, and attempts to push back against the series of what you call unequal treaties that are happening as kind of the prehistory of what we see later on in the story. The Meiji government is trying to overturn these unequal treaties. The individual practitioners are also trying to grapple with this. So um, so, for, so that listeners have a sense of what exactly is being grappled with. Can sure. you kind of start us off by explaining what do we need to know about what's happening with these unequal treaties early in the story in order to understand the kinds of reactions to them that are shaping the legal history and the history of legal practitioners that come later? Okay. Um, before we get to the treaties, I mean, I'd like to go back to Edo, if we could. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because, uh, because in a sense, um, I mean, I think when, we, when you talk about overturning a paradigm, I mean, that's, uh, that's really where I'm, the work is beginning for me in this book. Um, and, so, and, and so what I'm looking at there is, um, is the emergence of private legal practice within Japan itself before this encounter um, with Europe and the United States. And so the treaties are, are um, the sort of the mechanisms by which uh, Europeans and Americans uh, make their power felt on the ground in, um, in Meiji Japan and also earlier, of course. Um, but during the Edo period, we see, uh, and what I'm arguing is that there was a, an ex- a private legal practice that existed um, before this encounter. And the people, and if we compare it to the private legal practice that in- existed in Europe and the United States uh, at the same time, uh, then we see more similarities perhaps than differences. So um, that's where we, that's sort of where, where, why I begin with the Edo period. Um, and then when we get to the treaties, uh, we have this uh, sense that um, for uh, the Japanese state that Japan is met, being measured against a, a standard of civilization um, that uh, from the outside, um, Japan does not meet, uh, Japanese society does not meet. And so from the inside, uh, you see um, reformers, state reformers trying to um, you know, transform Japanese society from within by transforming law. Um, and that's there's nothing new to that story. There's lots of people been uh, writing and researching that element of the story. Um, but what I bring uh, to the table, which is new, is a discussion of how that was, was really working out from the bottom up. And what I argue is that if there hadn't been both this pre-existing um, private legal practice during the Edo period and then a bottom-up engagement with that whole reform project, um, then it would not have uh, produced um, the fruits that it ultimately did. Whether they were bitter fruits or sweet fruits, I'll leave that up to others. Um, but uh, the fruits that it produced would not have been possible without um, some sort of bottom-up 
uh, private legal practice, uh, both during the Edo period and then um, during the Meiji period. Great. Thank you so much. Sure. Chapter one calls the state-centered narrative of Japanese legal history into question. And it does Mm -hmm. that by exploring the fact that despite um, the fact that the Tokugawa state is actually prohibiting the dissemination of legal texts, it's a really interesting part of the story, legal knowledge in Tokugawa Japan was actually really widespread. And by the end of the 18th century, there were two main forms of Edo-era legal practice. So I'm going to ask you to introduce both of those because they are very important parts of the story. One yeah. of those, sorry, one of those forms sure. um, was what you called state-sanctioned suit-ins in towns mm-hmm. and cities. So can you um, introduce those? What were they and, and what role do they play at this part of the story? Sure. Um, there were state-sanctioned suit-ins were uh, the inns that um, emerged in Edo, but also in uh, all the major castle towns um, and also in uh, the cities and towns that were directly controlled by the Tokugawa, for example, in Nikko, there was a suit inn. Um, and so these, what these inns did was that uh, if someone was coming to um, one of these sites on official business, um, they would, they, they were, uh, they could lodge at these inns, and, and in some cases they were required to lodge at specific inns, um, and then they would go to uh, whatever. Um, whatever office of the state apparatus that they had um, official business with, and um, then they would, uh, you know, have you know conduct their business and then go about their, you know, go about their activities. So um, these suit ins uh, were over the course of the Edo period became initially they were a kind of um, begrudgingly. Uh, allowed to um, provide the kinds of services that they did to uh, petitioners, um, but then over time um, they were, became increasingly powerful, forming guilds um, and becoming closer and closer to uh, the state um, offices that they served. So, what would you be able to do at one of these suit ins that you couldn't do otherwise if you were somebody involved in a legal complaint? Um, well, they provided all kinds of services. Uh, initially, I mean, the idea was that uh, from the state perspective, the idea was that they would simply produce documents that were necessary to the state so that they would draft a petition, um, that they would uh, notify the state that the person had arrived, uh, that they would even, so they had a kind of supervisory role that they would perhaps uh, supervise these people when they were in town, make sure that they didn't stray too far away, that they would be available if they were called uh, to state offices. Um, but as the, as a petitioner, you would come to the suit in and you would really be seeking legal advice. You would want help uh, to try to resolve your conflict, whether it was a conflict with the state, um, what I call inquisitorial matters, um, which what would, um, in our current legal system would be called a criminal matter. Um, or if you had what would be, what we would call civil matter, um, and what at the time was a sort of adversarial matter between uh, two private parties, um, you would come to one of these inns and you would seek advice on how to resolve uh, your conflict. So the the role of these suit-ins went well beyond uh, simply drafting documents. It went, um, uh, I, I would argue that um, we can see that there was evidence of uh, advice from the suit-ins to the petitioners. Now you talk about a transformation of these suit-ins um, with the formation of guilds, and this actually seems really significant to this story in part because mm-hmm. In this period, before the emergence of these guilds, there were other places that you could go to aside from the suit-ins if you wanted help with this sort of stuff, right? Tea houses, you mentioned, um, but also other kinds of spaces. And so what changes significantly with the consolidation of these guilds? 
Um, well, what the guilds did was that they gave the student proprietors a monopoly on um, the business of lodging uh, people coming to the to Edo or to cities or castle towns um, to bring a case. And in particular, in inquisitorial matters, if the state summoned someone, this is what I mentioned um, just a little bit ago, if the state summoned someone, this, you know, they could be required to lodge at one of these inns. So that was very beneficial for the inn. It could require a person, you know, would go and issue the summons um, and then bring that person uh, forward to the state. Um, and then it would, in a sense, um, hold them uh, almost like a pretrial holding um, and then uh, and then bring them before uh, before the state um you know, before the state offices or state officers. Um, so that's, that's one kind of function that the, that the guilds provided allowed for these uh, students to monopolize that business. Um, there were all sorts of businesses I mentioned that emerged outside of the offices of the, for example, the Machibu Gyojo, the, the town commissioner in Edo. Um, people would come to hear, have a case heard, um, and they might petition to have the case heard, and they would be told to come back or they would be told to wait a few hours. And so uh, tea houses or noodle shops emerged here, and these people would um, eventually try to provide um, legal services as well uh, or scrivening services as well. Um, But really the uh, students tried to, and I can't say that they were fully successful, but um, they were able to edge out uh, or suppress competition from um, these other uh, sources of potential uh, legal advice. So including the students, which are state-sanctioned, one of these other sources of potential legal advice um, came in the form of suit solicitors. So mm-hmm. they are not state-sanctioned. Can you say a little bit about them and what role are they providing for somebody who needs legal advice and legal help in this period? Sure. Um, I think it's probably important here to mention, some, mention a little bit more broadly what the attitude of the state was towards litigation, and particularly towards private litigation, uh, during the Edo period. And the state um, took uh, pretty took pretty strongly to uh, the Confucian idea that there should not be any litigation. Um, Confucius had the Analects makes a statement that you know make it so that there is no litigation. And so the the Tokugawa state really took this to heart, and so tried to suppress um, private disputes. Um, it viewed them uh, as a kind of challenge to the idea or the notion that the state was um, providing or creating harmony. Uh, in Japan. And so there was this idea that there should not be um, private disputes. And the private disputes were, in a sense, a, uh, an example of the failure of the state. But of course, people did have disputes. They would have disputes about um, someone not paying a loan or someone not providing, um, uh, you know, someone not, there'd be all kinds of, you know, different kinds of disputes that emerged during the Edo period, particularly as commerce became increasingly complex. And so you had people going to um, Edo, of course, if they had a, a dispute that required or that might merit um, shogunal intervention, but there were all kinds of other suits at all other kinds of levels of society. And so um, we have evidence in the historical record of these people, Kujishi or suit solicitors who were operating um, but it's tough to sort of track them down because they were prohibited usually by village compact, um, but also by uh, the domains and also by um, the uh, shogun, shogunate itself. Um, and so it's difficult to track uh, the activities of, of the suit solicitors who were, um, whose activities were prohibited. But I use a lot of, um, I look at a number of different uh, sources and stories to try to um, sketch out uh, what their activities would have been. From the perspective of craft, what were some of the important kinds of sources that you used to get access to this group of people who otherwise may have been written out of a lot of histories of legal practice in Japan? 
Um, for the Edo period, I'm really uh, looking to um, a lot of secondary sources, um, but sources that, and, and sort of standard sources like Umz's Tokugawa um, uh, law and practice, in particular his uh, discussion of the story of Ken, um, this villager who, uh, this young, this woman villager who's um, you know fighting against uh, both her village elders and her family. Um, and I think that we can see evidence in that story. We can see evidence in a number of stories of uh, the sort of classic stories of uh, village uprisings where the villagers could not have achieved or advanced within um, state systems of power without the advice or support of someone who was both um, both literate, but also that had knowledge of um, how the state structured its power uh, in a legal way. In other words, how it would, you know, what the laws were, what the rules were for petitioning, what the um, kind of claims one could make um, for redress and that kind of thing. So um, those were those were some of the challenges I had. So I tried to read uh, these Edo sources um, uh, from the perspective from the from the idea that there were these kujishi because clearly they existed. They were prohibited. I mean, they were almost continually and repeatedly prohibited from the earliest part of the Edo, Edo period. From uh, 1640 is one of the first examples of a, a statement in the Shoho Jiroku, and uh, it, it's one of the um, statements from Edo where it says, you know, we shouldn't allow uh, private practice. We shouldn't allow this kind of litigiousness in our society. So, great. Thank you very much. Sure. So, so as we move from chapter one, which also includes some really interesting stories about histories of um, legal knowledge in terms of vernacular storytelling and also looks at aspects of the historiography of these phenomena and considers why the kinds of issues that you're bringing up, I think, so compellingly in this chapter have often been written out of the histories of law and legality in modern Japan, we then turn to a chapter on what you call processes and practitioners. Chapter two looks at the lived experiences of a kind of bringing together of morality and law during the 1870s, primarily through the careers of two legal advocates. So what we see here before we get to these two legal advocates, there are some transformations in the kind of landscape of legality in Japan and the kinds of sources that come in as being relevant and important to um, take on by these two individuals who are sort of representative of two communities that um, you look at. And so before mm-hmm. we get to them, let's talk about some of those transitions. After the 1870s, as you describe here, law began to shift from what you call a tool for ruling to what you call a totalizing epistemological framework that called forth a nation state. Now, this shift is marked by a kind of synthesis or hybridization, both of earlier legal practices, so the kinds of practices that we talked about and saw in Chapter 1, with legal theories coming in from from Europe and the U.S., So one of the most important of these legal theories coming in or these legal, um, what we might call them tools or technologies coming in from Europe and the U.S. is the French legal code. Mm -hmm. Okay, so to set the stage here on which we're going to place our two examples from this chapter, can you talk a little bit about why the French legal code emerges as being so important in this context within this ecology of other kinds of legal theories coming into Japan um, from Europe and the U.S.? Yeah, um, I'm so glad that you sort of lighted on uh, the French civil code, it's often called the Napoleonic Code. Um, This was, in for me, this is part of a, a key sort of mechanism for thinking about uh, Japanese history in a broader comparative context. So oftentimes one hears about how during the Meiji period we have this kind of shopping around 
Um, and it is true that is true that that's how it worked. But in a sense, the, the Napoleonic Code was seized upon because it was seen not just in Japan, but worldwide as a kind of a collection of best practices. And so Meiji legal reformers uh, turned to uh, the Napoleonic Code as a kind of package of legal practices that would, and almost like a ticket that would gain them entry to um, the civilized world, this world that was measuring them and finding them to, you know, finding that they were coming up short and therefore uh, that it was appropriate to apply uh, the unequal trees um, to Japan from, you know, from the 1850s going onward. And so the sense for uh, early reformers like Eto Shinpei um, and others was that by translating this code and applying it, that Japan could um, sort of escape uh, the trap of the unequal treaties if it could just reform its laws and if it could just simply adopt this code. Um, so, the, so that was the appeal of the Napoleonic Code. Um, but it was a, a code that was widely, um, it was, you know, people, there were people in the United States who argued for its adoption uh, during the 19th century. Of course, it was adopted in France. It was influential in Germany. It was influential in a number of uh, you know, European colonies throughout the world during the 19th century. Great, thank you. So as we try to understand these two examples of larger categories of people who are then hybridizing and responding to this new kind of hybrid um, environment of legal discourse, legal practice, we need to understand that as of 1872, these two sort of major categories we had been talking about, the suit-ins and the suit-solicitors, are actually replaced with three new occupational categories. And these are developed according to French models, right? So following... Mm -hmm through the importance of the French legal code as our uh, major point here. Um, these right. three categories are the legal advocate, the legal mm -hmm. scrivener, and the notary. Now, right. two of these um, legal advocates emerge as being really important to your story. And so let's look at them in turn and talk about their relevance, given the broader arguments you're making here. The first one um, is Sonotel. She's fascinating. She is known as the first woman lawyer in Japan, although that's, you know, a little bit more complicated as you right. know in the story. Can you right. introduce her and talk about um, her importance to this part of the story? Sure. Um, I mean, I'm bringing, there, there are these two figures. I'll, I'm going to go ahead and introduce them both here because they really are sort of okay. dancing pair um, for me. So, um, I mean, Sonotel is really, uh, she's, I mean, there, there are a few people within Japan or Japanese legal circles who would say, uh, she's the first woman lawyer. She's even the first anything in Japan. I don't, I don't even know if she's known, uh, to Japanese legal history. Um, I mean, I haven't seen her, uh, identified within the discussion of early legal practitioners. Um, she was, a, she comes to, uh, my attention because of her autobiography that she wrote in the tradition of uh, kind of conversion narratives, Christian conversion narratives of the 19th century. She joined the International Temperance Union, um, and she was a proponent of temperance uh, from the United States, who then went back to Japan in the late uh, late 19th century, 1890s. Um, but in the 1870s through the early 1880s, she says that she practiced, um, she was engaged in uh, private legal practice as a daigenin or legal advocate um, in Tokyo. And it's interesting, she's very interesting to me because of her idea of what legal practice should and would be. It's really an extension or continuity of what uh, law was coming out of the Edo period. But at the same time, she's this radical figure because she's a woman who was engaged in private legal practice. And it appears that there were, um, she was joined in this by others, although um, I do focus on her. Um, and then I see it as a kind of counterpart, um, this guy Kodama Junichiro, 
who is a who was a former samurai uh, out of Yamaga, Yamaguchi, um, and who uh, was sent to Japan first by his domain and then by uh, the Meiji state um, to learn about legal practice uh, in the United States. And so he was a pretty um, ex- this cosmopolitan guy. But what's interesting to me about both of these is that the, the Christianity figured so largely for them. Um, and so while in retrospect, many people, when they talk about uh, modernization or modernity or Japan, there is this focus on a kind of uh, rational legal narrative um, that where we see the moral or idea of morality falling away. And in particular, the modernization um, narrative doesn't really talk about morality very much at all. But we see in, in the lives of both of these figures um, the centrality of Christianity um, Sono comes to Christianity later in the story. She's really, I, I suggested she kind of has a Confucian Christian piety. Um, and for Kodama, he converts, uh, he becomes actually a, a minister while he's in the United States. Um, uh, but that sort of disappears once he returns back to Japan and he's seeking a high bureaucratic appointment. Um, but there are both these kinds of figures operating in tandem who, for whom uh, morality really matters in ways uh, that figure much more largely than one usually hears about in the kind of in the suggestion of the quest for a rational legal modernity um, that's supposedly embodied in the West. So, so those are why they why they were exciting and fun for me to look at. So great. Now, as we move forward, one of the things that we're going to see later on is that there's going to be a transformation in the kind of education that you're expected to have and the kind of training that goes into qualifying somebody to be a practicing um, legal advocate and then ultimately Mm -hmm. lawyer in this later period. So just to kind of understand the nature of that transition um, for when we get there, let's. um, I wonder if you wouldn't mind just spending a little bit of time just staying with before we move on from them, Sonotel and Kodama Junichiro, and just saying a little bit about how are they being educated? I know the answer is not the same for the two of them. And right. How is that education translating into the kinds of qualifications that are being recognized by the people they're arguing in front of as legitimating them to having some stake or some status within the field of legal practice that they're both yeah. involved in? I mean, this is really where we also where we see the kind of echoes to uh, the Edo period, right? So, and we see this uh, as a continuity all the way into the early 20th century. Um, we have a kind of status designation. You can be a Daigenin, a legal advocate, but how did you get that? Well, initially, you just simply called yourself a legal advocate, um, and then you could, and that was all you needed to do, really, is, as long as you were um, you were literate and you weren't blind. Um, and you were of age, then you could go before the court and call yourself a legal advocate. That was in the early years. Um, and so in terms of training, uh, Sono Teru, she um, perhaps uh, did some reading uh, in, um, there were a number of uh, code books that were put out by the Meiji State at the time. There were a number of different translations. Um, this becomes more important, as you're suggesting, uh, as the story goes on. Uh, but in this earliest moment, um, there were people who were holdovers from the Edo period, and they simply called themselves legal advocates and then practiced before the court, um, reading uh, court digests or um, cases of opinions. Or there were uh, there were um, sort of very short pamphlets or books that were put out that sort of fit inside. I talk a little bit about how they could fit inside your kimono sleeve because there was the sense that um, many of these people were perhaps ill-prepared and they would just sort of tuck these kind of crib boats, books into their kimono um, before they went before the court. Um, but in any event, uh, there wasn't any kind of formal uh, legal education um, in this early period. And that was the case uh, all throughout, not just 
um, not just in Japan, but also throughout the world in terms of private legal practice, we don't really see the formalization and institutionalization of legal training um, until the end of the until the end of the 19th century, and so both uh, Sono and Kodama, so Sono uh, sort of self-trained, um, and Kodama uh, got his training by going abroad and observing uh, the U.S. court system. Um, but both of them, um, you know, operating within this very fluid system, which both drew on uh, Edo period precedents, but then also was looking outward, in particular to French models. Um, but other European legal models, American legal models, uh, depending on the judge, um, to uh, to try uh, try trials to to resolve disputes. Great, thanks so much. Now, as yeah. we move forward into the later chapters and into the next chapter in particular, we're going to start to see this transformation in the kind of education that's going to be codified and available to. Um, legal practitioners. And this is going to continue to change throughout the um, later chapters as well. Now, remind us um, late in the second chapter that Kodama is actually a former samurai. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the next chapter turns to looking um, more directly at the larger class that he's part of. So where were former samurai in this larger history? Interestingly, some of them are actually you know, trying to find jobs, and they turn to legal study. Um, and this next chapter, chapter three, sort of looks at some of the really wide-ranging consequences of that by giving us a really wonderfully detailed kind of play-by-play narrative of the transformation of the career of one of them into this organization that that then goes on to become um, transformative and also emblematic of larger transformations that we see in uh, the emergence of groups of legal practitioners and the kinds of education available to them. So let's turn to this. One in, I think one of the good ways to do this, or one good way to do this rather, is to f- turn right to an example that you use right at the beginning of this chapter that really emblematizes these transformations. And this is an example of a legal ent- enterprise created by a former samurai, Kitada Matsutadashi, and an elite commoner, Teramura Tomi. And this is this group that emerges called Hogoshusha. So can mm-hmm. you can you in, um, introduce that for us, if you would, and sort of sure. as a way to get at what are like what are the kinds of transformations we're seeing in this part of the story, and how does this um, organization kind of start and emblematize those? Yeah. Um, so again, if we think back to the Edo period, I want to stress that there were that um, samurai were not engaged in private legal practice during the Edo period. So I want to state that emphatically here. Um, and so by the time we get to the early Meiji period. Um, and we sort of get a, um, a kind of um, ratification of uh, legal activity in uh, the, you know, changing laws. Um, we have figures like Kodama who um, practices, um, you know, emerges as a kind of private practitioner before he enters uh, the bureaucracy. Um, you begin to get um, samurai who are former samurai um, by this point. Who are saying, you know, maybe we should engage in this kind of private legal practice. Maybe it's okay. Maybe it's even, um, maybe it's even right. Maybe this is what we need to do. Um, and as they begin to read and think about uh, political theory from uh, Europe and the United States, and begin to reflect on their own position in society, they think, hmm, this is the kind of function that we occupied uh, within the state previously, and particularly for those people who left uh, state service as a result of the debate over invading Korea, they think hmm, this could be a, a mechanism or a means by which we could re-enter positions of power 
um, positions of leadership and authority. And so you find uh, some uh, folks who are involved in oftentimes uh, former bureaucrats, um, people who worked within the court system, people who were uh, allies of Eto Shimpe or others. Um, they say, well, we, we're going to leave and uh, start up our own private legal practice. And, and this, the Hokushusha is an example of that. And so uh, what you see is former samurai uh, engaging in private legal practice as, uh, as an occupation, as a means for making money. Um, but also this, th- what they do is they establish associations that are really um, hybrid uh, in their pursuit. They, these associations like the Hokushusha uh, trained people to become private legal practitioners. Uh, they were profit-making enterprises. The Hokushusha was very successful, so successful that it uh, would give its employees large bonuses and sponsor um, parties for them at uh, you know key times of the year, uh, not just Bonenkai, but you know um, uh, cherry blossom festivals and all kinds of things, and theater outings, and would give them a, a, a sake um, a stipend. Um, so you know these were uh, wealthy enterprises, um, and these former samurai began to um, use these to also fund their political activity um, to, again, try to uh, transform the political environment in which they operated and, and, and really start political parties, which is, uh, which, which is part of the story in just a moment. <laughs> but, um, That's right. Exactly. But I don't want to get too far ahead of us. So. <laughs> oh, well, first, we'll, let's get to the public sphere. We'll get to political sure. parties okay. right after right. the public sphere. Sure. Okay, okay, so this is a part of the story where anybody who's interested in the history, historiography, general theory of the public sphere will perk up their ears because it's it's that's what this is all about in the second part of this chapter. So this group that you just described is one of many kinds of groups and associations that are forming in this period in a context in which, as you describe it, the relationship between the individual and the government is changing, it's reconceptualizing, and it informs the study of lawlytics by several other kinds of groups, including the one that you just mentioned. So these kinds of groups include debate groups, study groups. And one of the reasons this is so important is that, as you argue here, this helps create new spaces for public practices and public activities. And so could you talk a little bit about that part of the story and how this relates to your argument about the, um, the ways that this intersects with and engages with larger notions of a public sphere? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um I mean, this again. I want to stress that this is a global uh, historical moment, not just a Japanese historical trend, um, and that these people within Japan were part of a larger uh, political, you know, sort of global um, legal and political discourse. Um, for example, uh, Rudolf Magnitsky uh, he wrote a, a, a treatise on the the um, legal state, and this was read by uh, folks within Japan, and so they they were they really focused on the idea of the rule of law and establishing um, rule of law within Japan. So, and here I'm talking about these former samurai who were establishing um, these um, private legal practices. And so when you mention space, I mean, oftentimes people think of that as just a kind of empty metaphor, um, but really we are talking about the physical spaces of these, the offices of um, the folks who are engaged in these private legal practices. They built, the Hokushusha had uh, many branches. They had a branch in Tokyo, Osaka, um, and down, down in Kobe, I guess, and uh, Hiroshima. Um, so they had a number of, of base of um, branches, and these were pretty substantial buildings. Um, and people would come and meet in these buildings and talk about um, political issues, um, uh, and, and just sort of, you know, they served as a, as a kind of base uh, for people to stop in after they went to. The, folks would go to the Meiroksha, and then they'd stop in because uh, there would always be someone working at one of these after and have a drink or something like that. So there were a physical space. 
Um, and they were also, though, in that kind of metaphorical vein, um, they were a place in which people uh, conceptualized what it meant to um, sort of challenge the state. So um, oftentimes the idea of the public is, or, or the society is, is juxtaposed uh, with the state. And for many of these former samurai practitioners of, um, of private legal practice uh, in the 1870s and 1880s, I mean, they really saw themselves as taking an oppositional tack and attempting to transform Japanese society by, by creating a separate public sphere independent of state intrusion. And this is happening at the same time as a transformation in the kinds of an availability of print media that are enabling this. So would you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that? Absolutely. I mean, some of these figures, like Hoshitoru, I mean, he had his own uh, his own newspaper, right? So it was called... Um, uh, the Japanese name is escaping me for the moment, but Lanterns of Liberty is, I mean, he, and he had both the English and the Japanese on the masthead and he had a big picture of, uh, the, the British House of Parliament and the Thames. Um, and so for a figure who was a private legal practitioner like, uh, Hoshitoru, the, their private legal practice activities, um, could, you know, sort of finance, um, the, the kind of print culture, uh, that would promote their ideas. Also, the activities of the private legal practitioners before the courts was great theater, um, and so, uh, again, we're sort of getting a little bit of ahead, ourse- ahead of ourselves in the chronology. But if we think about the 1883 <clears throat> trial on the Fukushima incident, we can see how um, you know, this really made exciting news. Um, and the um, private legal practitioners became kind of heroes in the freedom and popular rights movement. Um, and people would, would read about them and celebrate their activities in print. So. Um, so they, they really figure both as producers of, uh, you know, producers of print media and um, uh, from a kind of oppositional position, um, but also uh, they, they figure as uh, subjects of the print media itself. Great. Now you mentioned Hoshitoru. He's actually the focus of the next chapter. So the next chapter uses as an, as an example to get at the kinds of social and political transformations and legal advocacy in the late 19th century, as well as sort of ways of understanding the application of a legal education to a political career. And here we see the emergence of this um, concern with political parties that we mentioned before. So you mention Hoshitoru in the context of this chapter as an example of the kind of emergence of a figure of a professional lawyer. But you mm-hmm. also mention him as, an, as a way of um, giving us a glimpse into how legal advocates like him paved the way for the emergence of political parties in Japan. So let's get right to that. Can you talk a little bit about um, him, sort of introduce him sure. a little bit, and what yeah. do we need to know to understand the way he kind of helps us get at the emergence of political parties in Japan? Yeah. I mean, Hoshi is an extraordinary figure, and uh, I've been criticized by some people for using him, um, as, 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 but I'm sort of having it both ways with Hoshi. Um, in some ways, he's an exemplary figure, and he's really fun to talk about uh, because of, of how exemplary he is and how extraordinary he is. He was a former commoner. He worked in uh, the Tax uh, and Tariff uh, Bureau in Yokohama. He had he went up against uh, Harry Parks, who was um, the British ambassador to Japan at the time, over uh, calling um, the, the uh, Her Majesty the Queen. Well, he called uh, the Japanese emperor an emperor, and that was problematic for Parks because he thought the Queen should be called an emperor as well. Um, and so, ironically, this the um, Meiji government decided that the solution to this was to send Hoshi to London uh, to, to study in the Inns of Court. So he went uh, to. Um, 
England and became one of uh, the first Japanese or the first Japanese barrister. Um, now we know that this was important to him because in his uh, papers, which are at the National Diet Library, he preserved the wax seal um, that he received uh, welcoming him to um, uh, the um, British Inns of, to become a member of the Inns of Court. Um, so he was a barrister um, and he came back to Japan and, and there was really no sort of equivalent of, I mean, he didn't want to become a private practitioner because the status, the social status for private practitioners was low at the time. Um, and he, so he got a government sinecure, but uh, that sort of didn't work out for him. And so he decided that um, he would become uh, an activist supporter of private, you know, of political parties. And so he hooked up with the Liberal Party. Um, but he's he's a kind of exemplary figure, but there were so many other figures. Um, and I mentioned the kind of hybrid nature of the associations of legal, legal advocates. And if you look at um, the Liberal Party throughout Japan and its establishment in um, the early 1880s, you'll see that almost every um, party branch was founded by or co-founded by um, someone who was a private uh, legal practitioner. So um, this was really the material base, I would argue, for uh, the Liberal Party, not, and not just the material base, but also um, the kind of ideological base uh, for the formation of the Liberal Party uh, in Japan at this time. So Hoshi is, is a great uh, sort of figure to look at that. Um, but behind him, there are there were many, many other figures who were uh, less, less fun and less flamboyant, uh, but at the same time, uh, deeply embedded in the establishment of the party, the Liberal Party. There were, um, speaking of his fun and flamboyance, there were many elements of that description of him that I really loved, including you mentioned he was known for his, quote, passionate masculinity. I love that. I'm using that for, <laughs> right. for some reason um, in, the, right. in my casual conversation as I move forward this week. And, right. uh, he also has this reputation as a fighter. So he's just a great figure for someone who doesn't know much about this period to sort of pick out. But could well, you he say, could, he, sorry, yeah, he, was, he, was, he was really a shapeshifter in so many wonderful ways. I mean, he would go to court in these um, suits and, um, you know, the sort of high that's, um, I know Jason Carlin has talked about how uh, the high collar in some circles was seen as eff- effeminate. Um, but he he kind of had a gang of thugs that he sort of traveled with, a kind of posse, um, from what I understand. He was really a polarizing figure. I mean, but at the same time, he could he could be so many different things. You know, he could be this culture, cultured British barrister. He lived in this um, center, if you think and talk about civil society, I mean, the center of uh, theater associations, lawyers' offices, and doctors' offices when he was in um, in London. And so he was really this kind of cosmopolitan figure. Extraordinary. I mean, if you look at his library and the books that he requested uh, that his wife bring to him while he was in prison, I mean, just an extraordinary list of readings in multiple languages. Um, so he really wanted to be this kind of sort of almost national nationalistic tough guy, um, but at the same time very cosmopolitan and cultured. So uh, really uh, interesting character, yes, yeah. So you've already mentioned the fact that um, the and the chapter lays out in great detail the fact that associations of legal advocates like him sort of pay or including those that he was part of mm-hmm. paved the way for the first political parties in Japan, right? And you talked a little mm-hmm. bit about the Liberal Party being a good example of this. Now you previously mentioned um, an incident, uh, the Fukushima incident, um, in. Uh, a little bit earlier in our conversation. And that also comes into play here as an important part of the story. Could you say a little bit more for listeners who've never heard of that incident about not only what the incident is, but how does this help us understand 
why or how it was that there was such a close relationship between legal advocates and political parties. What was that um, formative influence in developing, for example, the Liberal Party that may not have been there um, had the legal advocates not been such an important part of the story? Yeah. I mean, we'd have to go back earlier. I think sure. it, it well predates the Fukushima incident. I mean, the, the, the associations themselves, I mean, they were reading uh, political theory from around the world. Uh, they were thinking about um, Japan in the context of, of, you know, different sort of ideas about the rule of law and ideas about the individual and debates about freedom and all these kinds of things. And I do talk um, also a little bit about the sort of overlapping associations um, like the Meiroksha, the Meiji Six Society, uh, the Omeisha, the, um, the Debate Society. The Omeisha really had intense and tight ties to associations of legal advocates. So oftentimes these groups would um, work places where, uh, where people made, made a living um, while they engaged in um, political activism and so I want to stress that, that the ideas, the sort of practice, the practice, private practice of the law, um, both provided a material basis for their political activism, but it was also the context in which they really worked out and thought about um, in a practical way, like in a day-to-day um, occupational way, what many of these ideas uh, meant within uh, Jap- Japan's societal and political context. So, um, so that process really began uh, during the 1870s, the mid from the beginning from the mid 1870s for samurai. Um, and we can see another figure that we haven't really mentioned is this guy Shimamoto Nakamichi. Hoshitoru might be more well known to folks, but Shimamoto Nakamichi, another figure who um, you know had was a, a sort of uh, one of the upper level bureaucrats, but not top-level bureaucrats during the Meiji period, um, who left at the time over the debate of invading Korea. And then he was one of the figures sort of in the background of establishing the Hokushusha, and he uh, became one of the head of their Tokyo branches. But he, uh, you know, sort of went back into, into the past and found an example of, found sort of focused on the example of um, Oshiohei Hachiro, this former samurai who challenged the states. When we talked about the oppositional posture for private legal practitioners, I mean, he's one of, uh, Shimamoto Nakamichi is one of the figures who really tried to to give uh, some sort of historical heft to these former samurai who were private legal practitioners who were seeking to um, institute a new kind of political order grounded in ideas of freedom, uh, grounded in ideas of um, a public sphere, independent of state intervention, um, that were doing private legal work as their day jobs. So, um, so we see all that really from the middle of the 1870s. And by the time we get to 1883, you have the state, and we haven't really talked a whole lot about the state here, which is fine by me, but we can't leave it out of the picture entirely. Um, the major state's really getting nervous about this. Um, we've already, you know, we've seen a suppression of the Satsuma Rebellion successfully in 1877. Um, but still, you know, now we have these political parties and they're challenging the government. Um, and so the Fukushima incident is really an attempt to suppress the Liberal Party um, within uh, the Fukushima prefecture um, by a very unpopular governor. Uh, and the, the Liberal Party really pushes the hand of, of, um, of the Meiji state. Uh, people are arrested. Uh, and then there is a, a trial that emerges out of this where uh, the defendants are charged with treason um, because they've all... Uh, they're, they've supposedly signed an oath to overthrow the Meiji state. And the trial really hinges on the use of the term um, tempuku, overthrow, uh, and the, the lawyers in the case, including Hoshitoru and others, 
um, argue that this is not really, they didn't really try to overthrow the state and they used, uh, you know, French legal examples to say that there were no um, concrete, uh, there's no concrete evidence that they had made a preparation to engage in a conspiracy. Um, but ultimately that uh, their argument didn't prevail, but the sentences were pretty light in the Fukushima incident uh, trial, relatively speaking. By the 1870s, local associations of legal advocates are actually serving as the foundation for many of Japan's private universities. So they transform into law schools and then added other disciplines to them. So can you talk about that, sort of how the emergence of Japanese law schools from this context? Yeah, interestingly, in 1880, you see, so there are these sort of major turning points in the regulation of legal practice within Japan from the state's perspective. So 1872, the establishment of all those new categories that you mentioned. 1876, there's a licensing test. And then in 1880, the state looking at, I mean, I argue that it was in some, in some measure in response to the establishment of these hybrid associations funding uh, the activity, the political activities of all these former samurai but um, ultimately, the government says that in de- that these uh, that you can can no longer have these kinds of groups of uh, these sort of hybrid um, uh, law firms. Basically, They're, they call them daigensha uh, associations of legal advocates. Um, and so, what you begin to see over the course of the 1880s is that these um, associations of legal advocates sort of to try to figure out what it, what course are they going to take? Are they going to flout the laws which say they should disband? I mean, some do. Um, are they going to focus, you know, are they going to just simply focus on um, political activities, which some do, um, simply becoming um, political party branches? Or are they going to focus on their uh, educational activities, which others do? Um, and it's those uh, associations that become first law schools uh, and then go on to become um, the major, some of the major private uh, universities in Japan, including Senshu University, Meiji University, Hosei University, Waseda, and Chuo University. So um, this is really untold part of the story, and that's why I didn't uh, feel nervous about using the term um, legal epistemology that you mentioned earlier, um, because we really see uh, you know, law um, uh, coming to the fore in so many ways, uh, despite uh, state efforts to suppress um, you know, elements uh, within society that are trying to um, make law mean something uh, for people in society itself so, and interpret law. So. Now, I, I can't come to the conclusion of the interview without getting to that which I promised at the very beginning, and that is lawyers, the emergence of lawyers. Right. So in 1893, legal advocates become lawyers, and this happens through the passing of what's called the lawyer's law. So, Ken, as a way to kind of wrap this up um, before we get to our concluding questions, can you talk a little bit about that and the importance of that or the story that you're telling? Um, sure. So, I mean, there's this ongoing uh, problem for private legal practitioners within uh, Japanese society, and that is the legacy of the Edo period, which is why I had to go back and, and think and talk about Edo. Um, because the Edo private legal practitioners were so close to the state and they occupied a kind of gray area, um, their successors, many of whom initially were those self-same uh, private legal practitioners from the Edo period, um, and then other Daigenin really wanted to, in particular these former samurai political activist types, really wanted to sort of separate off um, the work that they did from uh, that, uh, that history. And so ultimately they decided that their goal would be to create a new status, new category, uh, independent from the legal advocates, the Daigenin, independent of the uh, suit solicitors and suit-ins, 
um, and to create something entirely new uh, that would be you know globally recognizable. Um, and so they uh, settled on, on bengoshi, um, the contemporary Japanese term for lawyer. So this is where uh, we see, really, we see uh, the private legal practitioners themselves organizing and pressing for uh, a you know new category. Um, and they can they're able to do this now. And we're again we're sort of we've been leaving out large elements of the story. But um, by the time they do this, we have you know Meiji Constitution, um, we have a, a national diet, and within that national diet, we have many private legal practitioners um, who are engaged in the work of creating this new category for themselves. So um, that's in a sense where uh, the story wraps up with um, private legal practitioners having uh, created some of the. Um, you know, leading uh, private universities within Japan, uh, being uh, key figures in the establishment of uh, the major political parties within Japan, and also reformulating uh, the the um, the basis for their their own profession. So, Daryl, um, now that we've come to our conclusion, as you just mentioned, we have left out large parts of the story, as is, of course, um, necessary in any kind of attempt to spend um, 58 minutes or so talking about a very rich and and very detailed, very um, exhaustively researched book. Are there any specific parts of that story and or any other elements of the craft of the book, the general context of the book, or anything else related to the book that you'd like to mention for listeners? Um, well, in the course of writing the book, it, it really came to me that, um, I mean, in terms of both interrogating the categories that I was, exam- that I was examining, um, but also thinking about, uh, you know, sort of going back to you know, ideas of freedom or ideas of the public sphere or different, these kinds of things, it really came to me that we really still do inhabit, in a sense, a 19th century world. Um, and that's striking to me in, in many ways. And so I really felt like um, I wanted to begin to explore that. And why I say that is that um, so many of the you know, sort of the categories, the assumptions, the, the values, um, the people hold dear in the contemporary world were institutionalized, formulated, um, came to life in this period. And what I'm really arguing in the book is that that was a global process, not a process that was brought to uh, Japan, but a, a process that was worked out um, in a global way. So, so I hope that the people take the book as a kind of departure point for thinking about um, the 19th century more broadly across, uh, you know, across this uh, sort of recategorization or reevaluation of, of categories. So, well, so speaking of departure points, now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book, what's next? Thank you. Are you um, are you currently inspired by any particular project or projects? Yeah, I mean, there was. I was really lucky when I was doing research for the book, um, and that I had an affiliation with uh, Jose University. So, um, you know, one of the universities that, that sort of emerged out of uh, this history itself. Um, and I was able to, you know, I looked at um, so many wonderful materials there. And one of the questions that I'm thinking and looking at for uh, continuing the project into the early 19th, excuse me, into the early 20th century um, is the question of the jury system in Japan. Um, and so right now I'm working on, uh, um, I've sort of done a, a kind of book chapter on the first jury trial in Tokyo which was a trial of a young woman who was charged with trying to burn down her sweet shop. Um, and so I'm expanding that um, project and looking at uh, Japanese society through uh, the lens of the, that trial and reaction to that trial. 
Excellent. Well, best of luck with that. Thank you so much. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.